The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. We're going to go ahead and get started with our hermeneutics class. Uh, It's good for us to be back, Bev and I. We enjoyed a really restful vacation. We missed a couple of Sundays and Wednesday, Uh, but we had a good time at the beach and also uh, had a chance to see my brother in Pensacola, so that was a lot of fun. We had a really smooth trip. Yeah, we did miss you guys. It's good to see you all back, and uh, appreciate Eric filling in for a couple of Sundays. Got good reports back on that. I was able to listen to your first message. I've not listened to your second one yet, but appreciate your ministry to us that way. We've been talking about in our class overcoming these different gaps, gaps between the time of the biblical authors and ourselves, gaps both in time and culture. Uh, in grammar even, the fact that the scriptures originally are in different languages than what we have today. Today we're going to look at uh, two things, mostly figures of speech, and we'll talk about what that is, and a little bit of Hebrew poetry, just a few slides on that. We've been going through the Psalms on Wednesday night, it's a good example of Hebrew poetry, but uh, some have estimated that half of the Bible is written in this particular narrative form. So it's important for us to understand what the dominant feature of Hebrew poetry is and just get look at a few examples of that. So that's kind of where we're headed. What is a figure of speech? That's a real question. How would you define it? Or how does Zook define it? All right, I'll just tell you how Zook defines it. <laughs> the laws of grammar describe how words normally function, and we big on literal interpretation, right? Uh, That's our default setting. In some cases, however, the speaker or writer purposely sets aside those laws to use new forms, forms we call figures of speech. And there's a really famous guy named E.W. Bullinger. I brought his book, and I brought it just to show you how big it was. This is one that you could use as a doorstop easily. It was uh, first published in 1898, has... 200 categories, categories of figures of speech in the table of contents and 8,000 examples from scripture. So I don't think anybody's done anything to improve upon that since he wrote it. And it's still still available, still uh, available for purchase and publication, still in print, I should say. But a figure of speech, for example, would be the difference between saying it's really raining hard out there and it's raining cats and dogs or that's a real frog strangler. You know, you're using words that you don't take literally, but you understand the intention. And it's it's a normal part of language. Figures simply, and this is Bullinger being quoted by Zook, figures simply are words sentence thrown into a peculiar form different from its original or simplest meaning of use. There are thousands of figures of speech in the Bible. I mean, he he gives 8,000 examples in his book alone. I doubt that he's done every single one. But they serve to express truth in vivid and interesting ways. Every language has them, uh, and the Bible is no exception. So some reasons for using figures of speech and some examples that support these reasons. To add color or vividness. Sometimes with a figure, like you can in English poetry, use something that uh, expresses it more strongly or more vividly than you would in normal prose. The Lord is my rock. Now, obviously, he's not a rock, a real rock, 
We don't interpret it literally that way, but we get the picture, right? He's a he's stable. He's trustworthy. He's not going to shift. That's the implication when we say the Lord is our rock. Paul said, "Beware the dogs." Now, is that the basis for our beware the dog sign in our yards? No. What what kind of dog is he talking about here? Yes. Me? Yes. Human dog. Exactly. The two-legged kind rather than four-legged kind. And there's some cultural difference here, right? Because we think of dogs as nice, furry animals as our pets. That's not the way they existed in Bible times. They were out in the streets, and they're still out in the streets, say, in India. Uh, they were not domesticated the way that we have them today, and they were dangerous. Well, who is he talking about here? when he talks about dogs. Let me read the rest of the verse and give you a little more context to work with. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He's talking about either Judaizers who are insisting upon circumcision uh, for someone to be genuinely saved, or even false teachers. He's using dogs in the way that would be used metaphorically at that time for someone who's uh, an evil person and in this context, someone who's corrupting the true gospel. Another way that figures are used are to make abstract ideas more concrete. Remember, after Moses had led the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage, after God had used Moses to bring all the plagues upon the Egyptians, they came down to Mount Sinai, and part of the, what the Lord said to Moses was, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What is the figure in that verse? He's bringing them on eagles' wings. What's the significance of that figure? What's it trying to communicate? Is it the speed with which he brought them? I don't think so. We think about an eagle being a very fast bird, but one of the ways that an eagle... Uh, well, one of the things that an eagle does is teach its little ones how to fly, and it kind of carries them on its back while they're learning how to fly. So it's a picture of the care and the provision and power even that the Lord had as he brought the Israelites down to uh, Mount Sinai to enter into covenant with them. Another uh, reason for using a figure is to make a truth easier to remember Remember when Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees, he told them they were like whitewashed tombs, very pretty and white on the outside, but full of dead men's bones and unclean things on the inside. So again, we have these kinds of things in our own language. Every language around the world is something common to it, and, and the Bible has them as well. We can summarize a concept with a figure. The Lord is my shepherd. We're not real sheep. He's not a shepherd in, the, in that sense. But certainly that metaphor helps us understand the way that the Lord cares for us and that we are his sheep, that we are dependent upon him, and that he cares for us in the same way that a real shepherd cares for his sheep. Then to encourage reflection, he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. That's in Psalm 1. And again, that's just, we'll talk about Psalm 1 a little bit more at the end, but it's a way for us to think about uh, you know, what is a tree firmly planted by streams of water? What does it do? Uh, how is it able to produce? 
and how is it able to be sustained? Okay? Knowing that there are figures of speech in Scripture and knowing that our default setting is literal interpretation, how do we know if an expression is to be taken figuratively or literally? What are some guidelines? And you probably saw some of this in the examples that we gave, but what would be the normal way that you would recognize a figure? Exactly. That's right. It, it would be bizarre or an absurdity. You know, the short answer is the context helps us understand if something's being used abnormally. Uh, generally, an expression is a figure when it's out of character with the subject discussed or contrary to fact, experience, or observation. For example, the Revelation 19.15 is describing the future return of the Lord. And it says this, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. Now, I have uh, amillennial friends who say, look, you don't, you don't interpret that literally. You're not consistent. And I say, no, that's a figure of speech. Uh, it's a way of describing the, the authority with which the Lord speaks. Uh, he's able, simply by the spoken word, to destroy armies. Uh, it goes on to say, he will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Certainly, there are a lot of figures and picturesque language in the book of Revelation. But those figures are still communicating literal truth. So, we assume literal communication, as we've said, unless there's good reason for taking it otherwise. In context, we'll make that clear. A figurative sense is intended if the literal will involve an impossibility or an absurdity or something bizarre. At least it would cause you to stop and question, right? Sometimes it could be uh, a toss-up whether something is a figure or not. Note whether a figurative expression f is followed by an explanatory literal statement. Let me give you another example here from 1 Thessalonians 4. Paul writes, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep that you may not grieve. Is he talking about people just taking their nightly rest? What is he talking about? Though, okay. Those who are asleep, if they are in Christ, well, it's talking about people that have died. Why would he call it just sleeping? Is it soul sleep? That's the way some people have taken it. I don't think that's what he means. How can the figure of sleep be used if somebody has died as a believer? Just their body is not used right now. Okay. It's a temporary condition, right? That same body one day is going to be resurrected. It's going to get back up. So it's longer than a normal sleep, to be sure, but that's the basis for which that figure can be used. It's a temporary condition. And as you continue to read the passage, it becomes clear that that's what he's talking about. About those who sleep, that you may not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So that's a condition there. Not every, well, every dead person is going to be resurrected one day, but not all to life. Some will be resurrected to eternal death. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, 
and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So context explains to us what he means by the figure. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Note qualifying adjectives, adjectives such as the sword of the spirit. Again, it's talking about the Holy Spirit in this context. It's not that he's literally, literally wielding a, a real sword, but the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Uh, Peter talks about a living stone both in reference to Christ as the cornerstone and us coming to Christ as living stones and being built up into a spiritual house. Again, this is not a difficult concept, I don't think, because we're used to using figures in our own language, but it is something that you want to be aware of as you're reading through a particular scripture passage. Does figurative language oppose literal interpretation? Of course not. Figures of speech are part of language. Uh, they convey literal truth. They don't oppose literal interpretation. They're part of it. Zook uses these terms, ordinary literal and figurative literal. I don't think you have to do that. I think we just, again, we normally understand each other based on a literal interpretation. We recognize when figures are being used. Now, there's a huge difference between figures of speech and figurative or mystical or allegorical interpretation. We talked about that early on in our class, how the church was dominated by figurative interpretation or allegorical interpretation for centuries. That's not the same thing. Figures of speech are, again, part of literal communication. That, that is a completely turning of its, on its head the idea of literal interpretation and making words and their intended meaning by the author say something completely different. So make sure you understand the difference between those two. David. Even somebody that embraces an allegorical approach, they would say figurative, they would treat figurative the same way we do, and which makes it kind of an artificial critique, doesn't it? I just think they go overboard in attributing things as figures that we wouldn't. Right, but like asleep, they would say, oh, that or certain things certain things plainly that, figurative they would affirm because yes. they're using it in the same way that's right so it's kind of an artificial critique to say that's not literal that is and how that's danced around yeah now when you say artificial critique are you talking about somebody that's favoring allegorical interpretation yeah. or somebody that's making a reference to revelation being yeah both sides are acknowledging that there is figurative speech yes and both it's sides used in a natural way uh, I think so, but again, I think the difference between us and an, somebody who's allegorical, they're trying to, a lot of times, get God off the hook for things yeah. that at the plain physical level don't seem right. And so they're creating a meaning there that we would not buy at all, but I, I, I agree that they would see um, figures as representative of something else. I, you know, to me it's amazing how long interpretation was under that. And I think a lot of it had to do with the Greeks and just mimicking what they were doing early on in church history. Uh, and, you know, the Reformations were really what cleaned that up. And that, that was in the 1500s. I mean, that's a long time. I think there were people probably 
that we don't hear about as much that weren't doing it through all that period of time. But there were an awful lot of people and an awful lot of time and ages where the Bible was, the true meaning of the scripture was just covered over because it was interpreted wrongly. Sure. It's like that idea about Jezebel. Some people think Jezebel is going to come back in the Revelation. Well, yeah, I so that's a good point uh, because you have instances like that example. You have instances where David is spoken of in the book of Ezekiel, uh, where I would say it's reference to Christ rather than David himself. Even though I do believe David's going to come back in a resurrected form, so some of that you really have to look at the context and look at what is the author trying to communicate here. Is it somebody? that could appropriately be named Jezebel uh, because of the similarity between what that future figure will do and what Jezebel did historically, or is it the real Jezebel? And in that case, wouldn't it be okay to say, well, we know there will be the resurrection of believers into the millennial kingdom, but not unbelievers. They're going to remain in confinement until the second, um, whatever, second, second resurrection. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it can't be Jezebel. That's true. That's a good, good argument. Now, you know, the Antichrist himself is resurrected during the period of the tribulation. Uh, and it's hard for us to know for sure there if that's a genuine coming back from the dead or if he fakes his death and comes back that way. But you're, you make a good point in that that Jezebel won't truly be resurrected until the end of the thousand-year kingdom. All right, so we're not going to go through 200 categories of uh, figures of speech, but we are going to go through most of the ones that Zook does. I, don't, I haven't even done all of them. I'm trusting that you're going to read the book yourself for some of these. Some of these, uh, just by God's providence, we've already talked about because we've talked about, for example, parables and true Bible allegories like the ones John 10 for example so some of these will be very familiar I'm just going to walk through some examples for you and again I wanted to say this early on hermeneutics is really important discipline for especially for those who teach right um, and all of you teach at some level uh, I think it's especially important to understand hermeneutics and the different types of hermeneutics that are used for men who are called to teach in the church. But these things will help you just in your normal Bible study. We all, even if we're not teaching regularly, we all interpret as we read, and that's what uh, these figures of speech and the other things that we've looked at as hermeneutical principles will help you in your own interpretation of Scripture. Christ says you are the salt of the earth. He doesn't say you're like it. He says you are. That's a metaphor. It's a comparison between uh, things in which one thing is, acts like, or represents another. What's the difference between a metaphor and a simile? Simile uses the words like or as. Exactly. So we're going to get to simile in just a minute, but that's that's exact definition. Now here's a different one called hypocatastasis. And it's not nearly as important that you remember these terms as you are aware of what the figure does. But when uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 22, dogs have surrounded me. Again, he's not talking about 
the four-legged kind. He's talking about the two-legged kind. And this is a comparison in which the likeness is implied by a direct naming. So we assume when he says that, that dogs are enemies. And we get that, again, from the context. Some of these have very fine distinctions, and some of them might even have some overlap. But we're just trying to make you aware of different categories of figures. So simile is a comparison in which, uh, as Randy said, one thing is explicitly said to be like, or, or the word as is used, one thing is like or resembles another. They are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And again, uh, it's, it's a picture, it's a word picture that helps you understand what the wicked are like. So we've talked about this before when we were looking at the life of Christ and particularly in Matthew 13, the parables. An extended simile is a parable, right? A parable has the words, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who went out to sow seed in his field or it's like a mustard seed. An extended metaphor is an allegory. The words like are not used. Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door of the sheepfold. And he, you know, he has a pretty long uh, story there, for lack of a better word, allegorical story in John 10, to describe the relationship that he is as a shepherd or as the gate of the sheepfold, to describe the relationship he has with his own. So we looked at figures of speech involving comparison. Here's some involving substitution. Jeremiah's enemies were saying, let us strike him with our tongue. Now, they might have been doing a tongue lashing, but not literally, right? They're not going up there to lick him to death. <laughs> They're talking about speech. Uh, they're talking about bringing false charges against him. So that's called metonymy when there's a substitution of one word for another. Uh, we understand what he means. I think we understand that figure and we kind of make a natural shift when we read it because it would involve an absurdity the other way. Prisca and Aquila said that uh, it is said of them that they risked their own necks for the Apostle Paul. Well, not just talking about this part of his body, but the, their lives, and the neck represents that. Well, why do you think they used the term neck instead of, say, heart or head? Hanged or chopped, executed by, you know, guillotine or axe is uh, the way that Revelation even describes some of the people that will be. But the <clears throat> synecdoche is the term that's used for the substitution of the part for the whole or the whole for the part. That's just one example. They risk their necks. They really risk their whole lives for the, for the Apostle Paul. Merism. Thou dost know when I sit down and when I rise up. The psalmist says, talking about God's knowledge of him. Now, it's not that he just knows those two parts, but it kind of gives the beginning and end point, and the implication is he knows everything about him. So it's, this is a subset of synecdoche in which the totality of the whole is substituted by two contrasting or opposite parts. Hendiadis is, uh, a f well, it's a transliteration of a Greek word a Greek compound word that means one through two. And this is a substitution of two coordinate terms, two distinct terms for a single concept in which one of the elements defines the other. So 
What is the context there in Acts 125? Exactly. And when it says to occupy this ministry and apostleship, what is the handiatus there? One through two. What would be another way to translate this ministry and apostleship? You could say this ministry of apostleship or this apostolic ministry. It's really talking about one thing, but it's using two terms to describe it. Personification, the mountain, and the, well, the Psalms have a lot of this, but so do the prophets. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Obviously, they don't really do that literally, but that's a very vivid way of expressing uh, joy. So personification is ascribing human characteristics or actions to inanimate objects like mountains or hills and trees or ideas or to animals. Anthropomorphism is ascribing human characteristics or actions to God or it could be to another being. It could be to Satan, for example. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. He doesn't have literal eyes like we have, but he has the ability to see and he sees everything. Anthropopathisms and zoomorphisms, anthropopathisms is describing to God human emotions. Now that one gets a little tricky, in my mind at least, because I think God has emotions. Uh, the fact that we're made in the image of God and, and we have emotions is a reflection of that. But that's just the technical term for when we talk, when we read something that describes to God an emotion or a way of expressing emotion, maybe is another way to say it that a human normally has. Zoomorphisms is ascribing to God or some other spiritual being an animal characteristic, thus the name zoo. So can you think of an example of that in scripture? Then can be God or somebody else in describing a human characteristic to him. Okay, so like a roaring lion, you could say that's a simile, right? Because it uses the comparison like, but at least it's still using an animal characteristic to describe the Lord. Even when Christ is called uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation. Why do scripture writers use those kinds of things? I mean, that's, that's the world we live in, right? That's the way that God is, himself is, is inspiring these words, but he's uh, using things that we see and understand and can thereby relate to God and, and have a means of understanding his power uh, in the case of a lion. Apostrophe, not the that thing, but the listen, O earth, and all it contains. So, Again, there's an addressing to the earth as if it were a person. Uh, it's a apostrophe, it's called. Direct address to an object as if it were a person or to an absent or imaginary person as if he were present. So we have also figures of speech involving omission or suppression. Can you think of the term for a figure that involves omission? 
some of you language junkies. What is it when words are left out and have to be supplied for clarity? Okay. <laughs> Did he say it was confusing when that happened? It is, I'm going to give you a good example of, uh, especially if you supply the wrong words, it can get really confusing. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15.5 says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Uh, technically, it's to the twelve apostles, right? Now, we, if we're familiar with the Bible, we read the twelve, we know what he's talking about. But that's in the form of an ellipsis. It's an omission of a word or words that must be supplied to make it sound like good English, good Good English grammar in particular. Kathleen. Me? Yes. So at this point, Judas Iscariot was gone. So does it represent the apostles? So, <clears throat> you know, even, I, I'd have to go back and verify this, but even after he's gone, yes, they are still referred to as the so 12. referring to the group. That's right. Yep. Even though it says the 12, it's the group. That's right. Well, they had already hunted around for one, too, right, in Acts 1. Uh, I'd have to go back and look at the chronology. He had not. No, because after the upper room, when they go back in Jerusalem, that they appoint the 12th, right? Well, they appoint the 12th in Acts 1. But that was after Jesus ascended. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So the 40 days have already taken place, and he's already made those appearances. Yes. I don't. I think that's what we're saying. He couldn't mean yet because he would have. He would have already made appearances to what were technically the eleven uh, before uh, he was appointed in Acts one. Yeah, so it means the That's right. That's right. And I want to say that even after Judas departs, uh, you know, after they Jesus washes their feet, they might refer, be referred to as the twelve after that. But I want to give you another example of an ellipsis that I think is really important. And I w this is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. I don't know if we've talked about this before or not. But this is in a context where, you know, Paul's already written one letter to the Thessalonians. And they've now, a couple of months later, need another letter because they th some of them think that the day of the Lord has already come. And they think that because they're experiencing severe tribulation, persecution. And so he's addressing that in 2 Thessalonians 2, and here's what he says. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. And again, you can understand if Paul had taught them in 1 Thessalonians that they were going to be taken out of the world through rapture before the day of the Lord, they're especially concerned because they feel like they're starting to experience all this tribulation and the rapture hasn't happened. They're wondering if they've missed it. Our gathering together to him that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit, that is somebody standing up claiming to be speaking by the spirit of the Lord, or a letter as if from, I'm sorry, a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord is coming. So it the implication there is that somebody might have written a letter and say, hey, you guys are in the day of the Lord and put the apostle's name at the bottom of it. He says, let no one in any way deceive you. 
And I'm going to read what it literally says in the Greek. And then there is an ellipsis, so it's not going to make sense initially. Let no one in any way deceive you. For unless the apostasy comes first, then the man of lawlessness is revealed. We have to supply words to that sentence to make it work. And in NAS, what they supply is this. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That is, the day of the Lord will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. The problem with that is that says that there's two things that have to happen before the day of the Lord comes, right? And those will be the things that we're looking for. The, the great apostasy of falling away of genuine professing believers and the revelation of the man of lawlessness. So we'd have to say in that case that the day of the Lord is not really imminent. That is, it couldn't happen at any time because these two things have to happen first. So my contention is that's not the best thing to put in the ellipsis. And I say that based on the context. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come or is present. Let no one in any, in any way deceive you for it is not present or it has not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. You see how I'm taking it from the context the way that they translated the, the verb before. And the difference there is those two events could then be within the day of the Lord rather than preceding them. And what Paul would say is, look, you don't see these two things, therefore you can't, not, you can't be in the day of the Lord. Does that make sense? We'll, we'll study that at another time, uh, but I just want to give you an example of how it matters what you supply in the ellipsis and how you need to let context dictate that decision as well. Rhetorical question, is anything too difficult for the Lord? It's not uh, a real question so much as to get the person who's being asked to think and to recognize, no, there's nothing too difficult for the Lord. It's a question which does not require a verbal response. It's given to force the reader to answer in his own mind and to consider the implications of his answer. Figures of speech involving understatement or overstatement, hyperbole, the psalmist says, every night I make my bed swim, I dissolve my couch with my tears. Another absurdity, uh, it's a very graphic way of describing how heartbroken he is and how much he is weeping. But we don't really think his couch is floating around uh, or completely dissolved by his crying. It's a deliberate exaggeration in which more is said than is literally meant in order to add emphasis. Again, you can't use something like this to say, well, the Bible's got errors in it. No, the writer knows what he's doing. We know what he's doing, too. So he's not making a statement that we don't understand. This is a really interesting one called litotes. It's an understatement or a negative statement to express an affirmation. Paul doesn't say, I'm a Jew of Tarsus in Sicily, and uh, Cilicia, sorry, a very significant city. No, he says a citizen of no insignificant city, and that's just a particular category. Uh, it's a figure to, to be different, I guess, to, to, emph to emphasize or express an affirmation in a negative way. 
Okay. Yeah. Interesting. You know, Paul's, he's quoting Paul here, but Luke is the writer as he writes in Acts. But when David, uh, this is an, an example of irony. We use irony or sarcasm in our own language. Biblical writers do it too. Uh, when David returned to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. Remember, he was out dancing without, at least without all of his normal robes on. It's a kind of ridicule expressed indirectly in the form of a compliment. And there's other kinds of irony, obviously. Uh, those are particularly hard to always pick up on in Scripture because you, you don't get tone when you read the Bible the same way you do when you're verbally speaking to somebody. It's a lot easier to pick it up that way. But you can still tell by context. Uh, Paul says at one point, you are all kings, and, and I wish I, would, I could reign with you. And it's clear that he's being sarcastic in that sense. Pleonasm, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. Well, what else do you hear with? It's kind of sounds funny in English. It sounds very redundant. But uh, let me read the rest of that quote from Job 42. And then remember, this is after, uh, after Job's counselors had spoken to him and after the Lord himself had straightened him out for the way that he was thinking. Job says, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees thee. What's his point? He's saying, yes, I knew you to a certain degree before all this came upon me. Now I know you in a much better way, and particularly after the Lord himself had spoken to him and said, in essence, I'm the one that created the world. I'm the one that created all these beasts that you have no power over. Who are you to question me? Uh, and Job is recognizing that. He's saying, yeah, and we... We talk about, you know, I don't know that person, but I've heard about them. I know a little bit about them just from what I've heard. In this case, he's saying, I know you much better now than I did before all this trouble came upon me. Another pleonasm that we see a lot in Scripture is, in the Gospel accounts particularly, he answered and said. Well, you don't need both of those. You can just use one in the English, but... Uh, that's just a category of a figure of speech. Figure of speeches are not always uh, one thing standing for another, like we often think of a figure being. Sometimes it's just characteristics of the language. Figures of speech involving inconsistency, oxymorons. These are one of my favorite figures in English, jumbo shrimp being a, an example. Uh, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What, how is that an oxymoron? A living sacrifice. You normally think of sacrifices having to die, right? That's why they're sacrificial. Um, but in this case, he's using it, again, as a means of communicating something they would have been very familiar with from the Old Testament, at least those who had that background, to the way that they were to see themselves now that they have become believers. Paradox. Whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospel shall save it. You don't normally think that way. You don't normally think of saving your life by losing it. 
Uh, this, so this is a statement that's seemingly absurd or contradictory. And the Bible has a lot of paradoxes, not just statements, but sometimes concepts, right? For example, if God only saves those whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world, how can men still be, be responsible? Paul actually raises and answers that question in Romans. So there's some things that are hard for us to understand and they're paradoxical in nature, theologically, but uh, we live with that tension, right? We accept the fact that yes, God has chosen and will save those whom he has chosen. And he's chosen not based on seeing what they'll do down the centuries. He's chosen based on his own good pleasure. And yet at the same time, all men are responsible. So just to summarize some guidelines for interpreting figures of speech, first, you have to determine if there is indeed a figure of speech involved. Secondly, determine both the figure and what it's referring to and kind of figure out what, no pun intended, but figure out what the point is, what the points of comparison are. Do not assume that a figure always means the same thing. Context can mean, can make it mean different things in different contexts. For example, a lion is used both to refer to Christ and to the devil. Do not press a figure beyond its intended meaning. When Christ says, I come like a thief, he's not coming to steal anything. He's just coming unexpectedly and suddenly. All right, so that's the biggest part of what we're going to talk about this morning. I do want to touch just a little bit on Hebrew poetry. I don't think this is in Zook, at least not in the chapter that you read for this week. It's been estimated that nearly half of the Old Testament's written in Hebrew poetry, and unlike English poetry, whose, well, I guess there are different types of English poetry and different characteristics of those poetries, but uh, it's not rhyme or syllables per line so much as it is parallelism. And there's multiple kinds of parallelism, but we want to talk about and look at some examples of three, synonymous, anathetic, and synthetic. So righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. That's a really easy one. You can see the antithesis between the two halves of the Proverbs, of the proverb, both the antithesis between righteousness and sin and exalts and disgraces. That's simple antithetic. You can have a compound antithesis, and it's basically just multiple uh, components to each half. An ox knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know, my people do not understand. It's just multiple elements, but the same basic structure as the simple. You can have identical parallelism. If you've been snared with the words of your mouth, have been caught with the words of your mouth. I mean, the words of your mouth is identical in both halves of the verse. And there's only slightly difference in, in being snared and being caught. You can have an inverted parallelism where the second half is just flipped compared to the first half. They did not keep the covenant of God and in his law they refused to walk. So here, this is again from Psalm 1. This is our last example. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the path of sinners, 
sit in the seat of scoffers. You can see a progression there, right? Walking, standing, sitting, and even some distinction, possibly progression between wicked sinners and scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord, in his law he meditates day and night. This is what's an example of what's called synthetic or cumulative parallelism, where some idea or thought kind of is built through the, the separate parallel lines and, and climaxes. Okay, that's all we're going to say about Hebrew poetry. And again, I, I just want to alert you, when you know about the parallelisms, you can see that, okay, this is an example where he's basically saying the same thing in the second line that he did in the first. He's just saying it in a slightly different way. Or he's saying something that contrasts the second line with the first. I think a lot of you already know that that's being done, but we're just, this is what hermeneutics is. It's making explicit a lot of things that we do subconsciously anyway, and really identifying sound principles for interpretation. So next week we'll look at types and symbols, types being uh, a picture in the Old Testament that foreshadows something else that's going to happen in the future in the New Testament. And then symbols are uh, a number of new to, uh, a number of Bible books have symbols that are commonly understood, and we just want to see what some examples of those are, and especially when you're reading books like Ezekiel or some of the other latter prophets, especially the book of Revelation, you want to understand how the, what those symbols mean. All right. Bev and I have to slip out quick again today. She's got uh, aunt duty instead of grandparent duty today. So forgive us for uh, being quick to exit, but let's have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we, we thank you for the gift of language. We recognize that that's one of the ways that you've made us in your image as well. It enables both you to communicate to us and us to be able to communicate back to you through prayer and, and to understand the communication you've given to us through your word. Uh, we recognize that language is common to uh, all the people of the world, but there, there are different languages, and even your scripture is written in a different language than the one that we use. But we thank you for the one, we thank you for really solid translations into our English language and good resources where we can even go back to the original languages of scripture and get a fuller picture, a fuller range of meaning for individual words and the syntax that your word is written in. Lord, help us as we continue. Help us to be faithful in, in reading your word and growing in our understanding of it. Help us as we come across uh, different places where your word is difficult for us because of these gaps that we've talked about. Help us to be able to apply the principles that we've looked at, again, so that we can understand your word better, we can know your work, know you better, and we can understand the plan that you're working out through time. Thank you for a rich time together this morning for everyone that was here. Uh, we, we do want to pray for Andre as he's in France and uh, helping his mom. Lord, give him uh, wisdom, give him patience, uh, help him to be able to help her. We pray that you bring him back safely to us as well. Help us all as we go out this week to, to be faithful in our witness for Christ. We pray in his name. 
Amen.